Since it is 11.58, not quite noon, I'll say good morning again. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I know there's not as many of us as what we might normally expect. Uh, several, are, are few are traveling, few are sick. Um, and so sometimes this happens, but I'm thankful for us to be here, those of us who are here. I'm thankful that um, those aren't who aren't here thought enough of us as family to let us know where they are. And uh, I appreciate that. And it makes me feel, I don't know, connected and thought of. So I, I always appreciate that. Um, if you want to go ahead and open up to Exodus 20, I want to look at that one more time. I appreciate uh, Josh reading that for us. What I want to talk about this morning uh, is idolatry. Um, and I'm going to talk about it, I guess there's a lot of different ways you can talk about any given subject. Um, idolatry certainly fits into that. But I, what, the way I wanted to talk about it is I actually kind of just want to go through and highlight some examples of idolatry, like historically. Um, and then at the very end, kind of draw some parallels or draw some applications for us. Um, looking in Exodus 20 again, beginning in verse 1... We see that these are what we are, we a lot of times call the Ten Commandments. And Exodus 20 is actually the point in the narrative with which the Ten Commandments are revealed for the first time. Moses has delivered the people, obviously with God, from Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai by God's leading. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and God writes with his own hand, uh, these commandments. And beginning in verse 1, I am the Lord your God, sorry, verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's probably a lot to say that someone smarter than me or more studied than me might be able to say about this commandment. But one thing that I noticed about it is it's, the first of the ten. Uh, I don't pretend to know God's mind. I think in a lot of ways we can only begin to understand what little bit that he's revealed to us about his mind. But it's interesting to me that this is the first of the ten. Fundamentally, God wants them to remember that he brought them out of Egypt. And he's the God that's delivered them. And then he says, and you should have no other gods besides me. It's almost like his resume for being their one God. Remember, I delivered you from Egypt. I beat all those gods. And now you're here listening to my commandments. And the first one is, I'm it. I'm the only one. Whatever temptation you may have to create for yourself a God from the water, from something that you conjure from above heaven, don't do it. Right? I am the Lord your God. And so... From nearly the beginning of humankind, right? I mean, you can think about the biblical story of Genesis. There's been this kind of tension, this struggle between what is right and what is wrong, right? There's been this uh, kind of battle brewing in the hearts and minds of every person. Am I going to do what I know or I've been told is right, or am I going to do something I want to do or what's wrong, right? 
And this is illustrated, this struggle is illustrated by the right that God is presenting in verse 1. He's almost acknowledging within the commandment that there is a temptation to form something with your hands. There is a temptation to mold a God out of the things you see in the water, the things you guess are in the heavens or you see in the heavens. And so in one sense, God is acknowledging that temptation. Right? That reality that the people already have been living in. They've been in Egypt for hundreds of years. They've seen it. right? But God is also saying that this is the reality. This is the truth. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. Right? And so we have this uh, kind of contrast. And so what I ended up titling this, not that titles really matter all that much, but we have this contrast of God's statute, right? Commandment number one versus statues, right? So that's kind of the image that I was thinking of when I was coming up with this lesson. Are we going to heed the statutes of the Lord or are we going to build our own statues, right? And, you know, most of us, we're going to talk about this later. We probably don't feel like we're building any statues, you know. But I want to illustrate kind of through history how this is actually more meaningful and probably more relatable than we might at first glance think. Um, notice in verse 2 of Exodus 20, I think there's kind of three keys, and I managed to phrase them all in with our words because that helps me remember stuff. Um, and interestingly enough, verse 2, I think part of them battling idolatry is to remember that who God is, was, and will be. Right? That's what he says in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That will forever be true about God. Like that was a historical point. That was an experiential reference, right? That is forever who he will be. That is who he was in that moment, right? And that's who prior he was. He's still the Lord your God, right? But also in verses 2 through 4, when he starts talking about not having gods before him, don't make a carved image, right? And then he starts talking about how he'll respond to that. But when you look at verse 4, uh, you get this idea that you need to respect, right, that God is a jealous God. So you're remembering not only who he is and what he's done, but you're respecting, like, his character, right? Respect that he expects only him. But then also in verses 5 through 6, there's, there's this idea that we need to realize that God is actually active, right? Like he's actually going to change his action based on you respecting and remembering this. Like either he's going to bring iniquity and trouble or he's going to bring, as it says in verse 6, their love, right? Depending on how you respond or you remember and realize kind of these things he's presenting. So I think that's kind of three keys that God offers Israel in fighting this temptation between what's true and what's false is you need to remember, you need to respect, and you need to realize Exodus 21 through 6, right? But historically, what did Israel do? We could go through the history of the Bible narrative and we could point out any number of failures in this. Um, but I want to highlight just a few. So I printed off some uh, probably kind of like goofy images, but they were the best I could find um, to illustrate some of these. 
So, for instance, the first God that I want to talk about that Israel uh, kind of got mingled with a little bit was a God called Molech. And this is like the most historical imagery that I could find of uh, Molech. In different, um, even parts of the Bible, his name varies a little bit, like Milcom, Molech, Molech, kind of like that, but it's all the same God, right? So it was... I don't know if this was the only image of Molech that existed through the generations. I highly doubt it, but this is the one that you can find images of online. So um, some things about Molech. as uh, a Canaanite or a Phoenician god. It was pretty early on. In fact, it was uh, originated in that land, the land that God gave Abraham, right? In fact, there's a lot of inclination uh, through history just not even biblical history, but as people, archaeologists, archaeologists work in that area, it seems like as much as they can kind of mesh the Bible narrative and what we know from archaeology, that when Abraham was called to the land of Canaan from Ur, Molech was already there. Um, and so we're talking about this is a long time ago. I mean, that's Genesis 12 when that happened. And so Molech was already existing in Canaan, in the Phoenician culture, probably. He spread elsewhere, um, and he was believed to have, his name was believed to have originated from the Phoenician, like MLK, just kind of those letters, and they put vowels into it. But that referred to a, a type of sacrifice made to affirm or acquit a vow. So the name even carries some... I guess, sense of worship even within it. Molech, mulk, is to, to have a vow or to make a sacrifice. And so uh, it is believed that Molech, this guy, was giant metal statues um, with a man with a bull's head. Now, to me, this doesn't look so much like a bull's head. I'm not sure like what era they pulled this from, but it seems that a lot of the study... Um, I'm sorry, I've been showing you Baal. I knew I had one with the bull's head. Ah, here we are. This is it. That's the bull's head one. So that is a rendering of what they suppose statues to Molech looked like. Um, you'll see in different places in the Bible comments like this, and we'll talk about it more here in a moment with some of these other idols, like passing children through the fire. Right, being allusions to this idea of child sacrifice. Well, Molech was a part of that. And there's a lot of study that seems to indicate that Molech being a giant metal statue with a bull's head, his arms might have been outstretched very often where he could place something kind of in his hands. And in his lap, there'd be a place to build a fire. So his hands would be like low enough to the fire that things could be consumed by it, but could be held in his hands. And it was this imagery of like you were offering that thing to Molech, but it would be burned in his lap. Sometimes it's, they say that they suppose there might have been a slot in his abdomen where there was kind of a space and you built the fire in his lap and whatever was in his abdomen would be burned up. So you kind of have this image of a giant metal man looking thing with a bull's head was the god of the Canaanites and the Phoenicians. Um, and to think about... Uh, some of the parts of worship involved with this, right? There was child sacrifice, some uh, passing children through the fire. As is often the case, um, 
there were some uh, aspects of sexuality tied to worship. But also there was uh, this idea that when you sacrificed your, your firstborn child, and I don't think it had to be a male, I think it was just firstborn, uh, it even included, historians say this, the expectation of financial prosperity for the family and future children. If you were to do that, it's almost that like prosperity idea, like you'll be blessed financially and uh, in your family if you give your first fruit, so to speak, to Molech, right? Uh, which seems like a common theme throughout all religious history. But as I mentioned in uh, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham uh, was called to move to Canaan. And this is what was going on there. I mean, as, far, as much as we can tell, this was already happening in Canaan. So historians actually say Molech was not where Abraham was. So this would have been a new experience. Imagine moving into a land where the people all around you are doing stuff like this. And I don't know what was happening in Ur. I didn't really look into that. Maybe similar type things were happening. I don't know. But he would have been moving into a place where this was not all that uncommon. Maybe that gives us a deeper appreciation of Abraham's willingness to follow God to a place like this. Being willing to accept that all these people were going to be driven out and he was going to have the land. As unlikely as that may have seemed. Um, but also I think what's helpful to realize is maybe this gives weight to a passage like Genesis chapter 22 when God says, hey, Abraham, why don't you sacrifice Isaac? If this was happening, if Molech worship where children were being offered for financial prosperity and blessings was common, he would have been like, that sounds familiar. Okay. Can you imagine the contrast then when God stops him at the last second and stays his hand and actually provides an offering for him that he doesn't have to sacrifice his own child. God is asserting that, one, he's different from Molech, right? And that he's better than Molech. You don't have to offer your firstborn son to receive blessing. In fact, the blessing that Abraham received was conditional upon a move on faith, not the sacrifice of his firstborn. And so um, understanding the idolatry... That was, that's happened in the world through history maybe helps us appreciate some different Bible stories more. Maybe helps us get a little insight into the culture of why maybe Abraham offering Isaac would have been more vivid. It was a contrast to everybody around him. Um, but I think what might be most helpful for us this morning is to not just understand that story, but to see how God really shows himself as more than the gods around him always. Even though in that text... There's no direct comparison made to Molech. If everything that history seems to be pointing to is true, God is better. Right? He stays Abraham's hand and lets him have his firstborn and provides, in fact, a ram for him at no cost to worship. Which ultimately we know is an image of how God provides his own son, unlike Molech, right? In fact, in 1 Kings 11, Molech ends up being one of the kings that are integrated into uh, Israelite worship. Um, there's a, there are so many that are integrated, it's hard to keep up with what's going on through the kings because high places are set up left and right. False gods are worshipped here and there. But um, in this text, in 1 Kings 11, you see this mentioned here. King Solomon sets up all these high places. And it says in verse uh, 5, 
Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, which was another idol, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, that's Molech, right? the abomination of the Ammonites. And so Molech stuck around for a long time. His, his influence in the cultures around Israel was there for a long time. Assuming from Genesis chapter 12 until this moment, this kind of stuff is happening. But let's talk about another one, the one I showed you a moment ago accidentally, this one. This is uh, Baal. Um, spelled a couple different ways, but mostly Baal or Baal, something like that with like an apostrophe in the middle of it. Um, he was uh, the god of, a god of Canaan, um, not specifically Phoenicians, but actual Canaanites. He was considered the supreme god. He wasn't, um, they had a lot of gods. They were uh, pantheistic in that way, but Baal was the like supreme one. He was like at the top of the pecking order. If you were going to worship like any god, if you were going to pick one, you'd pick him, right? He was kind of the pinnacle. Um, he was the sun god, the storm god, the crop god, the fertility god. And so with all of that, he encompassed almost everything that was important in a culture, agriculturally. Um, in fact, the crops and fertility were kind of one and the same to the people of that day. So like if you had an abundant crop and you had uh, abundant children, you were fertile in every way you could hope to be, right? And so that's how Baal got kind of tied into like being the crop god, but also the fertility god, right? We need fertile crops, we need fertile land, we need fertile families. And so as you can imagine, what comes with that then is a lot of very sensual, sexually explicit worship, um, along with your typical um, sacrifices being made. He was in fact, Baal was the son of El. You can see how that name would come around. Baal El. He was the son of El, um, which is interesting because uh, in Hebrew that also has significance, El. But he was the chief god. And Asherah, like mentioned in 1 Kings 11, the Ashtoreth, that's the same as Asherah. Asherah. She was the goddess of the sea. Um, and so they were all related. They were all kind of in this hierarchy of, of gods and goddesses with Baal being the like chief, the supreme god. He ended up, El, even though he was his father in their lore, Baal ended up like being the top-notch god. Um, and so I want to say all this to say that, uh, talk a little bit about this idol as its worship uh, pertained and how it relates to the Bible. Um, it was rooted in sensuality, as I mentioned before, and often involved ritualistic prostitution in the temples. And also a lot of like very ecstatic, feverish like cries just of worship. You know, kind of being overwhelmed and just crying out and a lot of uh, emotion involved in the worship of Baal. In fact, you might think of one story that kind of illustrates this um, in 1 Kings chapter 18, right? When uh, Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal and he goes up on the mountain to try to like confront them and figure out who's the real God. Is it Baal? Is it, is it Jehovah, uh, the Lord? And what do they do to worship? There's a lot of crying, a lot of wailing, a lot of jumping up and down and cutting themselves and making a big scene, which would have been very typical of Baal worship. Um, but of course, you know how that story unfolds in 1 Kings 18. They do that for hours and hours and hours. And then they eventually like kind of gas themselves. They're just out of juice and 
Elijah kind of steps up and takes kind of what's there's supposed to be the offering. He just dumps a lot of water on it and then makes one kind of very um, sober, calm, thoughtful prayer to God and just immediately fire consumes up the whole sacrifice, right? So like Molech or Milcom, depending on the text, God proved himself supreme, right? Just like he stayed Abraham's hand and said, you know, I'm different than the gods that are maybe in your community. I'm better. He did the same thing with Baal, right? In a very, like, intentional, confrontational way in 1 Kings 18, God showed himself to be real while Baal was never answered the prayers of his people. Um, in fact, another interesting insight uh, is that uh, in... Oh, sorry, this is the next one. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. But God did warn against God's... Jehovah warned against gods like Baal. I mean, you can read a bunch of passages. Exodus 20 is a great one. Have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6 talks about not involving the gods of the lands into their body, their people, which would have certainly included Baal. Another god that I want to talk about for a moment um, is this one. Kind of interesting. You can see like the fish-man kind of hybrid going on here is Dagon. Um... Historically, they believe that Dagon was a fish man god, like kind of like part fish, part man. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, archaeology and historical um, studies have kind of come up with images like this that they found that they believe to be Dagon because the wording of Dagon in the ancient is like fish, like something about duh. I can't remember. Um, but also recent studies have also tied him not only to fish, but to grain. There's some newer information that seems to say maybe it wasn't fish, it was grain. But either way, these are some images that have been found in archaeology that they suspect might be Dagon. If you type in Dagon in Google Images, you're going to find a lot of images like this one. But this one seems to be a very um, popular and consistent image among studies, this one. So this is Dagon. Okay. Um, Dagon was the god of Philistia, um, another you know Canaanite area god, but specifically to the uh, Philistines. And so he's mentioned for the first time specifically in Judges chapter 16. Um, if you remember that story, it's actually like at the end of Samson's life. Samson's tricked. I don't know if he's really tricked by Delilah. She asked him the same question like three times, but... Whatever happens with Delilah, he like kind of lets her get him in this position where his hair's cut and enemies are brought to him and they, they capture him and bind him and they take him off. And remember they like they gouge out his eyes and like it's just this terrible story. But when they capture Samson in, in Judges chapter sixteen, the God that they attribute for to their victory over Samson is Dagon. Um, it's the first time he's mentioned in Judges 16. And so uh, in that text, it seems like, right, that Dagon had finally beaten the God of the Israelites, right? Their judge, the one they could never conquer, had been finally delivered by Dagon. Well, it may seem that way. Um, in fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, it seems that way as well. Um, 
In First Chronicles chapter 10, we have the story of uh, Saul has been killed, right, in battle. And his head is taken, and the temple with which his head is placed in is Dagon's temple. Um, if you remember that story, um, after he dies, his head is in Dagon's temple, First Chronicles chapter 10. Another story that it seems like Dagon maybe is beating the God of the Israelites is First Samuel chapter 5. First Samuel chapter 5. You remember the Philistines capture um, the Ark of the Covenant? And they take it, and they take it into the temple of who? Dagon. And it's like their God has beaten the Israelite God. So let's go give some precious thing from the temple of their God. Let's go give it to our God. And you remember they set it before kind of the statue of Dagon, this big old statue. And the next day when they come in, the statue had crumpled and was as if it were bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. Um, You can read that story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So Dagon was a god of the Philistines that involved many of the same aspects of worship that Molech, Baal did, sensuality, child sacrifice. But again, like Molech, like Baal, he's proven to be inferior. right? And that's the least you can say of it. He's proven to be false, really, is the, the truth of it. And 1 Samuel chapter 5, I think, is the perfect illustration of that. It seems to be bowing the statue of Dagon, bowing before the ark. And, and then the real God, the true God of Israel, you know what he does to the Philistines while they have the ark? He starts sending plagues on them, right? They, they, they realize their statue's like broken and bowing before the ark, and then all of a sudden plagues start coming on their people. And by the end of the story, they ship that thing out of there. They're like, let's send this ark back. We don't want to touch it, so we're just going to send it back on cows that know the way, right? cattle that can get it there and they actually send it back with gold in the form of uh, basically the plagues that were sent on them they tried to represent the plagues in the gold and they send it back and so by the end of the story even though it began with Dagon looking more powerful it ends with them saying there are gods at work here we need to get this back to them right and so you know obviously we have the inside of Exodus 20 Deuteronomy 6 these passages but Making these gods maybe a little more tangible, seeing pictures, understanding their worship a little bit, seeing them pop up in the historical narrative of the Bible some, really brings to light, at least for me and hopefully for you guys, what it meant to be worshiping an idol, what it looked like, how prolific it was in the cultures around them. Like It wasn't just a few weird cult groups that were doing this. It was everybody, and the Israelites were weird for not, right? And they had to fight it over and over and over and over again. A lot of times they didn't fight it. They just let it be, right? I want to move to the New Testament because the Old Testament is not the only place where idols exist. Sometimes I think about idols as being purely like an Old Testament concept and that by the time Jesus comes around, everybody knew better, right? That's not really the case. One example is Diana of Ephesus. Um, She was a... uh, uh, what was it? A Roman, yeah. A Roman version, basically, of a Greek god. So Diana was the Roman name for the Greek goddess Artemis. That's what it was. I was getting those flipped around in my head. 
Um, and so this is an image of what she looks like. Um, obviously, being a much more recent idol, there's a little more information on her. A little more uh, figurines and things have been found. This is, I believe, a reproduction of some things that they've, they've found. Um, you can see she's actually rendered as a woman. She was the goddess of uh, fertility and also the goddess of the hunt. And so you'll see, if you can, I don't know how clear this is, but kind of down this, you see different animals like deer and like big cat looking creatures and stuff. So it kind of incorporates some of that aspect of the hunt, right? But also fertility, you can see uh, right above all those animals what they thought about fertility, right? She's like personified as being the most fertile, right? And so she uh, was the, the chief patron goddess of a city called Ephesus. So we know about Ephesus, right? Acts chapter 19, Paul spends a couple of years there working among the people, preaching. Eventually is able to establish a, a decent group of believers that ends up having elders and everything. Um, but with that, uh, the challenges of being in the city of, uh, of Diana would have been um, pretty pronounced. Diana had a temple in Ephesus. And it was like, if you were going to worship Diana and you really wanted to, to do it right, you would travel to Ephesus. She had places of worship probably in most cities because she was one of the gods. But if you wanted to really pray to the goddess of fertility, you traveled to Ephesus. That was where her chief temple was. In fact, her origin story involved her coming from heaven and landing in the woods just outside of Ephesus. Um, and, well, and her image fell from heaven in the form of a metal statue, they said. And so that's why uh, there was this giant metal statue of her in the temple in Ephesus. And so if you wanted to worship her, you'd go there. Since she was the goddess of fertility, you can imagine some of the things involved with worship of her. While the temple didn't employ prostitutes within it, people contributed prostitutes to the temple that would operate in the city, and the money that they gained would go to the temple. And so I think perhaps the image that I've always had of like prostitution in the temple maybe isn't exactly right, but they did have prostitutes working for the temple. Uh, throughout the city and they were donated by patrons they would donate a prostitute or a woman to the temple to be a prostitute and she would have to do that for the temple and so you can imagine a lot of what the worship might have looked like it was just considered doing business and earning money for the temple being a good patron um, it involved eunuch priests uh, it involved virgin priestesses it involved witchcraft almost like magic if you remember in Acts chapter 19, when people were converted to the Lord, what did they do? They divulged their practices, and they burned their books of magic. Okay? And so that helps us maybe understand a little bit about why that's happening, because it's the city of Diana. You did that kind of stuff. Um, in fact, in lieu of that, some people get really upset that Paul's had such success in the city, and the people that are getting upset are the craftsmen, the artisans, the, the metalsmiths, the silversmiths, those people. Why? Because they were selling little trinkets just like this one. I don't know if they looked exactly like this, but you can imagine little like, if you come to Ephesus, you're going to buy from the silversmith or the coppersmith or whatever a little trinket to take home of, of Diana. Right? It was big business. 
And so in Acts chapter 19, when they start doing that and people are listening to Paul and they're giving up all that stuff, you can imagine how much that hurt business, right? And that's why in Acts chapter 19, uh, you see that those people are getting upset. There's a lot of uh, interesting details about Diana revealed and uh, confirmed, I guess. We know historically, but the Bible also confirms these things. Verse 35 of Acts chapter 19, it talks about how they knew that she herself fell from the sky, which is her origin story, right? How in verse 26, um, one other aspect of this that we've known all the way since Exodus chapter 20, right? And if you want to look there with me, I'm actually going to read this verse, Acts chapter 19, verse 26. And it reads... This is uh, the men that had gathered together with the workmen and the people doing the metalsmithing. Verse 26, and they say, And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, that's what God said in Exodus chapter 20, right? Um, and Paul's teaching what is already known to anyone who's a, a follower of God. But it's news to them. Imagine that gods made with your hands are not real gods. Um, I think that's a principle that maybe for a lot of us seems pretty obvious. But maybe in practice we don't actually believe it. Um, the realization that these people made about the God of heaven that Paul was preaching is that he wasn't claiming to be one of those. He wasn't claiming to be an image of their hands. In fact, he prohibited that, right? Exodus 20, we read that. And I think we need to realize this as well. Um, Acts chapter 17. This is kind of where we'll, we'll use this to kind of wrap up here. Acts chapter 17. This was a God of the people, but it was kind of a different God. Um, a lot of you have probably seen this image before. The thinking man. Famous, very famous sculpture. Um, there's replicas of it all around. Um, the thinking man. But in Acts chapter 17, the thinking man is kind of personified. Uh, the reason the thinking man is a famous sculpture is because of people like the Stoics and the Epicureans. I don't know if those are the right ways to say that, but in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to Athens... He starts preaching, right? And he's speaking there. But before he ever gives that kind of that sermon, that is a great sermon. It's a great apologetic tool to kind of learn from. Um, you begin in verse 16, and let's read this together. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others, uh, others, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I am going to suggest to you that when Paul enters and he kind of observes Athens as being a city full of idols, I'm going to say he probably included these Epicureans and Stoics in that. 
Just a city full of idols. Now, it might not have fit the traditional sense of an idol, something made with hands that was worshipped. But in a figure of speech, it is still an idol, right? Um, in fact, let's talk a little bit about what this is. I'm going to suggest to you that knowledge and philosophy can be an idol. And I think that's what Paul was fighting against with some of these people in Athens. Not just the ones made with hands, but also, as it mentions, the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers, right? He arrives there, and he, let's talk about the Epicureans for a moment. Um, Epicureanism, I didn't know this at all, so this, you guys may all know this, I had no clue until I looked it up, is a system of philosophy based on, upon the teachings of the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, founded around 307 BC. So, I mean, this has been around for several hundred years, and it propounded an ethic of individual pleasure as the sole or chief good in life. But it's not hedonism, because listen to this. Hence, Epicurus advocated living in such a way as to derive the greatest amount of pleasure possible during one's lifetime, yet doing so moderately in order to avoid the suffering incurred by overindulgence in such pleasure. The emphasis was placed on pleasures of the mind rather than on physical pleasures. Therefore, according to Epicurus, with whom a person eats is of greater importance than what is eaten. So you can see like the philosophy in that, right? To have pleasure is the chief good, but it's about thoughtfulness, like mental, intellectual pleasure, the joy of company, not so much the joy of overindulgence, right? Hedonism is like fulfill all your flesh, eat all you can, have sex as much as you want. This is more of an intellectual pleasure, right? That was Epicurean, Epicureanism. Stoics were uh, founded in Athens by a man named Zeno of Sidium in the early 3rd century BC, so a similar time frame. And Stoicism is predominantly a philosophy of personal ethics, which is informed by its system of logic and its views on the natural world. According to its teachings, as social beings, the path to happiness for humans is found in accepting that which we have been given in life, by not allowing ourselves to be controlled by our desire for pleasure or our fear of pain, by using our minds to understand the world around us and to do our part in nature's plan, and by working together and treating others in a fair and just manner. So in a lot of ways, these are opposites. Not like total opposites. Hedonism and probably Stoicism are like absolute opposites. But they're very opposite. One says, don't do pleasure, just do logic. The other says, well, do pleasure, but like make it an intellectual pleasure. Make it kind of a moral pleasure. Um, but these are the philosophies of the day. Athens like, was about this stuff. They had their idols, Diana, Zeus, all these other idols, and then they had these guys. And actually, as far as I could understand, many of the people that believed in these things also didn't believe in any of the idols. Some of them did. They would incorporate these philosophies into their worship of the idols, but a lot of them were actually, I guess, uh, agnostic, they would say. Maybe the gods exist, but they don't care about us, so we need to live like this, right? Which probably for us relates to us more, right? Like that's maybe more similar to our culture, maybe stoicism particularly. Use logic, treat people all right, but just kind of observe the world and learn what you learn and move on. Right. Um, I'm going to suggest to you that Paul saw this as an idol. 
It was one of the things that he debated and talked about with the people. Um, while it's not an idol, literally something made with your hands, it was a philosophy fabricated with the hands of men, the minds of men. And so I would suggest to you that part of what Paul says later in Acts chapter 17 in verse 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Paul presented his case for God. Some listened, some didn't. I imagine more didn't than did. Whether any Epicureans or Stoics became believers, I don't know. It doesn't really point us one way or the other in this text. Uh, But one thing is for sure. They would have, just like the people worshiping idols like Diana, would have had to abandon Stoicism or Epicureanism. And to me, what that says about that thing is that was an idol. If you have to abandon it to follow God, it was a type of idol that you had. You've put it in the place of God, and you have to pick one or the other. And so for those people, they would have had to choose, am I going to continue to follow Zeno and Stoicism, Am I going to follow Epicurus and Epicureanism, or am I going to follow Jesus and the resurrection? That was a choice they had to make. And then I imagine some did and some didn't. So what I want to say about this part is 21st century Americans, Western culture, we don't really have Molex. We don't really have Baals. We don't really have Dagons. But we have our idols. We have our Stoics. We have our Epicureans. We have our philosophers and trains of thought. Uh, these days, you know, we call them Nietzsche or we call them other modern philosophers, but it's the same type of thing. And I think if Paul or Jesus or somebody was here today, they would call us to abandon those things and follow the resurrection. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves, uh, we've, we, we may not have a house God that we've shaped with our hands, but we have an altar to something in our life. And so we need to ask, what is that altar? Sometimes, you know, you ask this question, is, is sex your God and sexual immorality is your worship? You know, or is money your God and greediness is your form of worship? Or perhaps it's work and ambition is your worship. Or maybe it is a relationship, i.e. friends and family, and community is your worship. You know, or maybe happiness is simply your God and pleasure is your worship. I don't know. We each have the things that we're struggling with that we're tempted to place on the altar in our lives and in our homes. And we have to say, am I carving, placing an image for myself of God in my life? Is it purely this? Or have I let God be in that place and he's not battling anything else in my life? Like he's it. If God isn't the only, uh, I guess, focus of your reverence and worship, if he's not the only image, so to speak, that you're focused on, um, then you have some sort of idol in your life. And so hopefully thinking about some of these idols, you know, like Diana of Ephesus or Molech or... Baal of the Canaanites, Molech of the Phoenicians, or maybe even Dagon. They seem really distant, but it was really never about 
them specifically. It was about that they got to make it with their hands. They got to choose what God was and who it was and what it meant. And we have the same struggle. And so hopefully this lesson has been helpful for us to kind of parse through our feelings and our focus and to realize that idols are still very real and God is a jealous God. And so just like the teaching in Exodus chapter 20, we need to remember who God is, was, always will be, just like they did. And we need to also not only remember, but we need to, um, as it says, as I wrote down, respect that God is jealous, respect his place as the only God. And ultimately, we need to realize that the way we handle that is going to choose how act, in what way God is active in our lives. Iniquity and judgment, or he'll come in loving kindness. So we need to remember the same things. Thank you guys for your attention. That was a little bit long, but I had a lot of history to get through. I appreciate that, and hopefully we find ourselves um, only serving God. If there's anyone here this afternoon that has some sort of struggle with an idol, whatever that may be, let someone know so we can get you focused on God, show you scripture that might be helpful to you, pray with you, whatever that need may be while we stand and sing.